Father, in this moment, we invite your Spirit, which has been present, to continue to work on our hearts. Lord, we ask that you will fill us with your Spirit. We pray that you will quiet the thoughts of our mind. We pray that the distractions which are all around us, which are internal to us, uh, will be put aside for these next few moments. Father, we believe that when we come to your word, that something beyond the ordinary happens. And so we pray that today, for one more time, you will speak to each of us, that we will hear the words that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when you have a policeman come to your house, that normally does not bode well, right? Who's, who's had a, a police officer come to their house before? They're like, they're like, everyone can see us if we put our hand up. It's all right. Okay. So I had a police officer a few years ago who came to my house. Um, and the police officer came to my house because I had asked the police officer to come to my house. I had received a bill from Albertsons and from Value Village. Um, and in fact, it was a past due bill. They said I had signed a check and that check had bounced and they were pursuing me for payment. Here's a couple of things which will immediately, at least for me, trigger that this cannot be the case. I can already see some student athletes who are looking and they're going, what is a check? <laughs> right. I don't use checks unless I'm forced to. You're on Cash App, you're using Venmo. We don't use checks. So that's the first thing. There is no way I have written bad checks because I barely know how to write checks. Here's the second thing, living in Seattle. There is no way, with all due respect to Morrison's and Value Village, that I'm going to be going there when there is a Trader Joe five minutes from where I live. And, you know, we have... Oh, I will... And, and here is the thing, you know, we can actually be part of collective action to bring Trader Joe to Tri-Cities, okay? I just, wrote, I just wrote an email to them yesterday, and I said, please, can you bring a TJ's to, to Tri-Cities? There's 180,000 people there. You have a Trader Joe somewhere in the middle of Maine. They have 5,000 people. This isn't fair. Come to Tri-Cities. <laughs> and so... I recognize that Value Village and Morrison's are telling me I owe them money. I know I haven't written a check. I know I don't go there. And when I invite the policeman to come and they've done an investigation, they say, it looks like someone took your identity. It looks like they made a false driver's license and they have been writing checks in your name. I'm like, okay, well, that's concerning. <laughs> and then he says, well, but the good thing is they didn't have your driver's license correct. They just guessed it. Because, you know, in Washington, there's a formula. And if you try to figure it out, you can get close to what most people's driver's license is. But it was a headache for me. And I had to spend time on the phone trying to rectify this situation of stolen and misused identity. And I believe that we are living in a culture right now where there are, for most of us, competing identities which are being given to us for us to be able to navigate and frame how we live our life. And these competing stories, depending on how we allow them to affect us, can have some really either damaging or some wonderful effects on our life. 
And this morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, where Jesus Christ is in a conversation, so to say, about his identity and about who he is. And there are three episodes in this, epi- in this um, narrative where Jesus is given three choices, three, I guess, glittering images that he can put on and he can use as his identity over the one that he really has. And I believe this morning that to the level in which we allow God's words about us to subsume our own identity or to subsume the false identities that we are giving will be the level at which we can live healthy, hopeful, and holy lives in Christ. Before you come to Luke's version of the temptation, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, tells us that This precursor to the temptation is Jesus Christ going to the Jordan. When he goes to the Jordan, he is baptized by John the Baptist. When he comes out of the water, the heavens are rent open. The Holy Spirit descends and looks like a dove. And when the Holy Spirit descends, it says in an audible voice, this is my son whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. And for those of you who've grown up in church, you have heard the sermon, and you know that I'm about to say that this is a wonderful thing because Jesus has done nothing. He has not healed anyone. He has not made the lame to walk. He has not given the blind sight. He has not given the deaf hearing. And yet the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he says, you are my son that I love. He receives incontrovertible affirmation of his value and his worth before he has done anything. And this love and this affirmation that he gets from heaven becomes the scaffolding that Jesus Christ uses to platform the rest of his ministry. And immediately after this, Luke tells us that Jesus Christ is driven into the desert And then Satan comes to tempt him. And I'm going to ask for those of you who uh, may be here, and this is a step too far for you to say, well, again, I might be able to believe that there is a divine power that is beyond just what can be looked at through the lenses of a microscope. But this idea of a Satan who is able to come and really tempt is a little uh, far for me. But just Let's hold on and let's go through the text and let's see what we can pick up as Satan comes to Jesus Christ and he tempts him to put on some glittering images that are not truly who he is. The first temptation that comes uh, to Jesus Christ is Satan comes to him and he tempts him with performance. He wants Jesus Christ to, to believe that his identity is based on his performance that he is what he does. And that's why he comes to him in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, and it says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He is saying, Jesus Christ, you have not yet proven that you are truly the son of God. Your resume of being the son of God is lacking. There are gaps missing in your work history. You need to perform and you need to prove through your performance that you truly are the son of God. 
And although this is an ancient story, we all sit here today and we understand the truth that we also live in a cultural moment and perhaps always have done and always will do where we are tempted to perform and to show our resume as being akin to our inherent value and worth. It's what David Brooks, New York Times columnist, calls attention between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. So on the one hand, we live in a world where we describe ourselves by our resumes, by what we have done, by what we have achieved, when in theory we all want to live a life so that one day when we have friends and family remembering us, they are not remembering the work or the positions we had, but how kind, how generous, how thoughtful, how open, how available we were in their life. And then Brooks makes this comment in his book, The Road to Character, speaking about these uh, resume virtues versus um, character virtues. He says, many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build an inner character. It's a challenge for all of us. We are more concerned with how to build external careers and facades and how to build an inner character. And I think most of us, if we were honest, would say that we would look at our life and say we have been successful if at the end of our life we could have finished college, we could have got a good job, we could have a good job that is paying us six figures, and after tax it's still six figures, we can have the ability to upgrade uh, our car to the newest one whenever the model that is dropping for 2019 comes out. We would be able to say we have been successful and this is who we are. And David Brooks tells us that we ought not to focus on these external measures, but rather be concerned on what happens on the inside. I was actually thinking, Emily, about the story she's looking up now, the story that you told a couple of years ago when you were a counselor, about this drive to performance which can often spin us into really dysfunctional ways of living and being. She was a counselor at one of our summer camps, you know, a, a wonderful feature of being an Adventist, of these incredible summer camps that we have all over the country. She's acting as a ca uh, counselor, and then one day, um, they get the news that there is a girl who's on suicide watch. She's 12. And of course, yes, eyebrows raised, and sufficiently so. Why would a 12-year-old be on suicide watch? What could have driven you at the age of 12 to have a life which seems so not worth living that you are thinking about taking your own life? So they bring this girl, and they sit with her, and they try to figure out why is she so bent on taking her life. And as the story comes out, they recognize that she has been living in a home where her parents have been essentially, whether they have said it explicitly, she has picked up the implicit message that her value and her worth is directly linked to her performance as a daughter. And this is what it looks like. She was a pianist. And her parents knew that she was an excellent pianist, but they pushed her to practice more, to do more scales, to do more arpeggios, to do everything she needed to become an incredible pianist. And at the age of 12, she snapped 
And at summer camp, she said, I'm done. I can never live up to the performance that is expected of me by my parents. I can never live up to the level of um, intensity that they want for my life. And all of us sitting here today, whether you have ever played a scale on a piano, have lived and felt the crushing pressure of having to live a life where your identity is tied to your performance. Or perhaps you have never played a scale on a piano, but you look at your identity and when you stand on a scale, you decide that the numbers which are beneath your feet are now the truest identity that you have. Or you look at yourself judged by the scale of Madison Avenue and you decide, well, you know what? I am, I am too big, too small, too thin, too large, too light, too dark, too exotic, too plain. And you live a life consistently trying to perform to show yourself as being worthy and as being valuable. And so this temptation is given to Jesus Christ, and he responds to Satan when he tempts him to say, you are your performance. He says in Luke, and I will get there, he says in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I don't know if Jesus Christ also had a wooden sword that he pulled out and started jabbing in the direction of the devil. And then Jesus Christ, as Satan comes to him with the second temptation, we read in verses 5 through 8 that the devil taking him up to a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, you will be yours. There are a number of things you can take from this, but it seems to me that first of all, Satan tempts Jesus to say, you are what you are able to do, performance, and then he tempts him in a sense with this idea that you are what you have, possessions. Because he's saying, I possess the entire world, and you don't. I have everything at my disposal, and you don't. So if you worship me, I will give you all the possessions of the world. And so he tempts Jesus Christ and says, you don't have anything, but I can give you everything you need. And again, we live in a time, and I think this is a, a, a really straight line that most of us can understand when it comes to possessions, where we believe, in a sense, again, implicitly or explicitly, whether we verbalize it or we just hold it hidden in our heart, that in some sense, we are what we possess. And this is not a new idea. In fact, Russell Beck wrote in the Journal of Consumer Research in 1988, uh, when he did some research on how marketers could better target their audiences, that our culture, this is Beck, I'm quoting, measures our success by what we own. And so he releases his landmark paper called Possessions and the Extended Self. And in this landmark paper, Beck is, um, Belk is saying this, that essentially believing that our possessions are what we have contributes 
to us feeling dissatisfied, and it's a reflection of our identities. And he wrote this in 1988, but just eight years prior, Eric Froome had released a book called To Have or To Be, and Froome makes a proposal which is similar to Belk about our identity and our extended self being rooted in possessions. We're going to quote him and see what he says. He says this, I can say I am what I have, or if I say I am what I have, then the question arises, what if I lose what I have? And therefore, the sense of identity based on what I have is always threatened. And then Froome continues, a person is anxiously concerned not to lose what he has because he doesn't lose just what he has, he loses a sense of self. And I think this is a dangerous but unfortunately commonplace for many of us sitting here today to measure ourselves by our possessions, to measure our identity by what we own, by what we are able to have. And of course, having an identity based on something is not horrendous. That's not what we're saying. I mean, if your identity is that, you know, you're a... Oh, where's Daria? If your identity is that, you know, everything you wear has to be supreme, right? You're a hype beast, that's fine. That's what you want to do. Every time the new shoe drops, you need to drop $500 on it because you're a hype beast, right? You want the phone cover. You want the Louis Vuitton. That's fine. That's you. If for you it's not, and everything you wear is going to be Gore-Tex, North Face, or uh, some, some brand that no one has heard of from Switzerland because your identity is, I live in the Northwest, I'm out, and there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear, I'm going to be out there. That's fine. That's fine. Good for you. That's that, no problem. No problem. Or for some of us, you know, our identity is rooted in something completely different. It can be rooted in in what we're able to get for ourselves, that, that is not a problem. The, the problem becomes when our extended self is based on our possessions because what happens when one day you are unable to keep up with the Joneses? What happens when your company right-sizes? Isn't that a terrible euphemism? They right-size and you are on the wrong side of the right-sizing. And now all of a sudden you are unable to continue the life that you had before. How does that impact your self-regard and how you see yourself? If you are seeing your possessions and what you have as an extension of yourself, once you lose that, then there is a sense in which you lose a sense of who you are. And all of us have got these internal yardsticks that we build our identity on, and it's un and it's a burden that is too heavy for us to carry. It's a burden that is built on sinking sand. It's an identity which is built on vapid measures. And so Jesus Christ sees that God has actually named him, and he has said that he is his son, regardless of what he possesses, regardless of how he performs. And in America, or perhaps even in all of the West, it's a difficult, difficult countercultural message that the gospel gives to us. You know, we have this rugged sense of America's self-individualism. We have this idea that you do for yourself, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You prove how worthy you are by how hard you work. But what happens 
when you are unable to be successful in that sense? What happens if you have some real challenges in your health? Then according to the American dream and this rugged individualism of the self, then you have no worth because you cannot contribute, because you do not have money in your bank account, and people can be spun into depression and anxiety when self-worth is based on it. And the final temptation that I believe Jesus Christ has to face as he is in the wilderness is when the devil comes up to him and continuing this conversation in Luke chapter 4, he says, then he brought him, this is Luke 4 verse 9, then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And so Satan here is coming to Jesus Christ, and he is saying, my man, listen, you, you have not done any of the temptations I've asked. Nobody knows who you are, so you need to prove yourself to be somebody to be a prophet, to be a Messiah. You need to prove yourself. So why don't we go up to the highest point? You can stand on the edge of the temple. You can look down, and then you can jump in full view of everyone. And if Jesus Christ and if God catches you, then that is going to prove that you are popular. That's going to prove that you truly are who you say you are. And so it seems that this third temptation, the first being I am what I do, performance. The second being, I am what I possess. Uh, I am what I have, possession. This one is a sense, popularity. I am what other people think about me. And so, I look at this temptation and I think about the difficulty of living in a time where we have an IV drip feed which is connected to our wrist so that we can know how people think of us, right? For some of us, it's maybe not in our wrist, but it's in our pocket. And every time it vibrates and we see the notifications, we can see how much we are loved by our popularity. We can see how many retweets we have, how many followers we have. We can see how many other people are tagging us on pictures. And when we look at that, that becomes, in a sense, how we see our value and our identity. And now, all of those who are saying, well, I'm not on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever else these kids are using. I don't care about that. Well, that may not be the place that you go back to look for your identity and to figure out if you are popular, but all of us have got habitual places we return to to see, am I loved? Am I valued? For some, it may be the Rotary Club. For some, it may be the professional organization that you pay dues to every single year or that you have to write a paper for which is accepted for you to continue to be in it. And if you were not accepted that year, or if you did not get the certificate, then for you, you would feel as if your identity is now in jeopardy. All of us have got habitual places we return to to try to reinforce and to get recognition. And so what do we do, right? Because you're sitting here looking at me saying, my friend, when I wake up in the morning, when I go and come out of the bathtub 
And I know you don't take baths in the morning, but this is my illustration, so you're taking a bath in the morning. <laughs> you come out of the bathtub. The ceiling does not, crack does not crack open. You do not have the Holy Spirit descend in the, in the uh, image of a dove and say, hey, uh, Tiffany, <laughs> you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Hey, Mike on the balcony, you are my son. Walk in your way. God bless you. You're going to hit the, you know, you're going to score the game-winning free kick on Saturday night. You do not have the Holy Spirit breaking through the heavens, declaring to you who you really are against these competing identities and ideologies that our culture gives to us. So what to do? I'm sure there are many things, but I'll tell you what I have found helpful in my life. Paul, who came after the disciples and who was a, a, a giant in the New Testament and wrote so much in the New Testament, actually speaks in Ephesians chapter 1, and this book is an incredible book. Paul is so excited to get the news out that he just writes one long run-on sentence in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. That entire chapter is just one continuous sentence. It's frenetic. He's, en he's energized. He has a message to get out. And really what Paul is doing is he is speaking about this in Christ motif, who you are, what your identity is, this en Christos. And it's what Paul does through most of the New Testament, speaking about who you are, who your identity is in Christ. He speaks about this identity as a sense of incorporation, that when you are in Christ, everything that Christ has had said about him becomes true of you. And so we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to pick out just in verses 3 to 14 some of the things that God says about you, regardless of how you feel based on your possessions, your performance, or your popularity. This is the truer word that Paul tells us Christ has said about you. So let's go. And we're going to run through all of these and just let it wash over you. Verse 1 or verse 3, he says that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. He says that you are chosen before the creation of the world. He says that you are loved, that you are predestined. He has given us an incredible picture of who we are in Christ. And then he continues in Ephesians. He says, not only are you loved, not only are you predestined, not only are you in Christ, but you have also been given the ability to be made according to the praise of the glory which he has given to you. He also says that you are beloved in Christ. He says you have received redemption through his blood. He says you have received forgiveness through him, that you have been given the riches of his grace. He says you've been given all wisdom, all prudence, all knowledge. He says you were made according to the good will and plan of Jesus Christ. 
He says that you have been gathered with him in heaven. He says that you sit with him in heavenly places. He says that you have been given according to the counsel of him so that you can be given the praise of his glory. He says you've been trusted with the word of truth and the gospel. He says you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He says you've been given a guarantee of inheritance and redemption. And this, my friends, is just verse 14. And then Paul carries on for another three chapters talking about who you are. You're a poem, he says, poem. You are a poem in Christ. You are artwork. You are made according to the workmanship of Jesus Christ. And this morning, you know, so often when we try to put our identity in these containers, whether it's possessions, whether it's popularity, whether it's performance, they are too small a container to hold the expansive person that you are. And too often when we live in a life where there is self-recrimination, where there are negative words which have been spoken to us by parents, by siblings, by people we work with, and then we try harder and harder to say, well, if I just get this promotion, if I can just get with this girl, if I can be the person who is able to solve this problem, then I will have worth, then I will have identity. And Christ shows us that we don't need to do any of those things. Christ shows us that we are worthy, that we are loved, and that we are valued. I'm going to invite my friends to come up. I have um, um, Ella and Katie, they're going to join. And I asked them just to close this sermon out with a song, a song which I love, a song which has in many ways given uh, me another place to be able to remind myself about who Christ has said I am. And so I'm going to invite you as we have the words of Ephesians 1 uh, ringing through our minds just to listen to this as a meditation of what God says about us. It's frightening You see right through the mess inside me And you, you pull me out to pull me in You tell me I can start again And I don't need to keep on hiding I'm fully known And loved by you let go no matter what I do and it's not one or the other it's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known fully known and loved by you I'm fully known and loved by you it's so like you to keep pursuing it's so like me to go astray oh but you got my heart with your truth the kind of love that's bulletproof and I surrender to your kindness 
I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go. No matter what I do, and it's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known and loved by you. I'm fully known and loved by you. How real, how wide, how rich, how high is your heart? I cannot find the reasons why you give me so much. How real, how wide, how rich, how high is your heart? I cannot find the reasons why you give me so much. I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, fully known and loved by you. I'm fully known and loved by you. It's so unusual, it's frightening. I'm fully known.